Welcome to the SSI Orbit Podcast, a forum for conversations that explore the ever-growing ecosystems of self-sovereign identity. And I'm your host, Matsur Glode. Now, this was a very fun and interesting conversation with Lauren Feld, head of growth at Three Box Labs, who's building the Ceramic Network, which, in my opinion, is one of the most exciting projects in the Web3 space. Ceramic's a decentralized open source platform for creating, hosting, and sharing data streams. So this is interesting to consider from a decentralized identity context, because as we all know, we leave massive traces of ourselves in the digital world. The products that have enabled user-generated content in the Web2 world have dramatically increased this. So if data is valuable, which I think every social media company in the world could attest that this is true, then how could this data be returned to the rightful generator of it and made portable across different applications? Ceramic is enabling this to happen. And on this podcast, we often talk about verifiable credentials and recently a bit more about government-issued IDs. So I hope this conversation gives listeners some excitement about now what's being made possible with these bottom-up approaches and how turning the data layer of applications into a public utility is the logical evolution of the web. So thank you again for being here with me today. Well, we're lucky to listen to another very smart person on this show. And now without any further ado, here's my conversation with Lauren. Enjoy. And we're live. Um, I started seeing recently, um, and it kind of reminded me of some years ago where it's just, and I went through different phases with like the term enterprise blockchain, where they, they try to enterprise something that's not supposed to be enterprisable. And recently I've been seeing enterprise web three, um, which uh, I, you know, I, it's cool that the day has finally come where enterprise <laughs> web three has become a thing. Um, I know you've worked kind of on, on both sides, working in, with enterprises, trying to deploy decentralized uh, technology architectures and projects. And you're obviously now doing a lot of work on a lot of bottom-up use cases and Web3 use cases. What, what excites you the most about what's going on in Web3 today and what really made you uh, make the switch over? Yeah, good question. And first, thanks for, for having me on and inviting me to be here. Um, Definitely was more in the enterprise side for most of my blockchain career, even though I've been in the space for like four or five years now. Um, and it was really interesting, like went really deep. I was at R3 for a little while. So doing stuff with Corda, spent some time working with a lot of projects around Hyperledger Fabric when I was at the Deloitte Blockchain Lab. Um, and this, like the return back to the more crypto native stuff happened really organically for me, just kept in touch with a bunch of teams for my consensus days, which obviously is like much more deep into kind of the heart of the Web3 space. Um, and obviously they do have um, the enterprise Ethereum space and the consulting arm is working on that, but really most of the spokes, the projects that are being incubated are really crypto native. Um, so kept in touch with the Web3, uh, the Three Box Labs team, which is the team that I just joined recently. Um, and yeah, just kind of like organically have been looking for something early stage, right, you know, opportunity space that I was interested in, right role, right team. And that all kind of coalesced for me in this role. Um, and now that I've jumped here, I'm so happy that I did and definitely haven't looked back. No shade to the enterprise blockchain world, but the crypto native stuff is definitely a hell of a lot more exciting. Um, and yeah, I think like it's just way more, it's way more innovative. It's like these really game-changing use cases that you don't see as much. A lot of the enterprise use cases are more about operational efficiencies, which is great, but it's mostly after some time you're just helping big companies be operate slightly more efficiently and improve their margins. And 
that gets boring real quick. Um, so yeah, I just think that this space has been so exciting. I mean, like one thing that's been really interesting for me is getting a lot deeper into the DAO ecosystem. And obviously that's like almost directly at odds with a lot of the enterprise blockchain use cases because in some sense, some of them are trying to dismantle that whole system. Um, but I think it's just cool to start participating and seeing people who are doing that full time, like people who are just working anonymously online for multiple different organizations, um, basically like doing like the freelancer thing in the Web3 space, but also having real equity and ownership and upside in these communities, which is super cool. In the DAOs specifically, I, I think I, I don't know if this happened with uh, with uh, Ceramic uh, yesterday, or but, but I saw something about Discord being down yesterday. It seems like Discord is the the way that a lot of coordination happens with uh, with DAOs today. Um, are, are you starting to see a lot more, um, I'm sure you have plenty of ideas around this, but are you starting to see a lot more um, interest or appetite from folks involved in DAOs um, to incorporate some decentralized identity pieces to it? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's like so many different ways to think about identity in the DAO ecosystem. I can talk about some of these cases now, if that'd be helpful. Um, but I think like in, in general, um, there is definitely this kind of conundrum of the DAO space is all about decentralization and having ownership over everything that you're creating and the organization as a collective. But a lot of times we're still using these centralized web two systems like Discord or Google Docs and using these things where maybe one or two people have to actually be the owners who hold the key that access and kind of control all this information. I think we've started seeing that move away at the edges, like at the really critical decision-making pieces of, or like mechanisms for DAOs. So if you think about like proposals um, and commenting on those proposals, that's definitely an use case we're seeing a lot more DAO tooling to focus on decentralizing that element because it's so critical to the functioning of those organizations. And Ceramic is doing a lot there as well, where we are actually storing all that information off chain in an open network in a fully decentralized way. And then of course, having an identity element is super important because you need to be able to match your comments and your actual votes and all of that to a sense of identity so we know who is doing what. And then you can also start to build up this really awesome reputation, right, where you can start to port that reputation across DAOs and organizations. Um, so the reputation systems is definitely like a very interesting use case that we're starting to look at where you can start to think about different contributions and skills that you contribute at different organizations. And if you do a, turn, a ton of work in, you know, forefront and you're being rewarded and people see you as a valuable contributor, you can have some sort of, you know, A plus type scoring reputation that when you now go to a new community that should be able to port with you um, in this open kind of decentralized world. Today, we don't really have anything like that that truly exists. Um, so there's a bunch of different communities that we're working right, with right now to think about these kind of open decentralized reputation systems where you can start to port that, you know, identity with you as you move across orgs. Um, the last thing I'll just talk about, I guess, is org directories. So that's another, you know, the coordination problem with DAOs is a huge challenge. And a big part of that is figuring out like, who are the different leaders or, you know, decision makers throughout the organization, working group leadership and, and all that. Um, and so there's definitely a need to understand the different roles and responsibilities within a DAO and storing all that information again in a fully decentralized and open way. Um, so that's one thing we're working with is creating these DAO org directories. And one cool thing that we've worked on, maybe going a little too technical too early, but um, is kind of this new standard around Gnosis Safes, which for those who don't know, Gnosis Safe is this kind of standard for multi-accounts or multi-signature accounts. 
Um, so it basically enables or requires more than one person to sign off in order to issue a transaction. So that's kind of a, you know, a standard that's been pretty established so far in the DAO ecosystem um, in terms of a primitive that people are building DAOs around. So now it allows us to build these org directories uh, in a fully decentralized way, but still having multiple people have to sign off on any changes or any information that's actually stored in that directory instead of just, again, having one person controlling the keys and deciding what is written and, and what is removed from that. I think there's a lot of misconceptions sometimes about different blockchain networks or protocols or whatever that it's like it's decentralized, decentralized, but it doesn't mean there's necessarily like portability between these chains, right? And that's that's a whole other use case. And so, in fact, blockchains they they are central places. They're distributed networks, but it, it's one network, right? And if you need to move across, that's where you uh, probably look to using uh, digital credentials to to try to do that. And um, I've had guests in the past on, on this podcast. There's a couple episodes that listeners could check out um, with uh, Stepan Gershuni, where we, we talked about DAOs a little bit. It's um, quite interesting to see the use cases of how credentials could be used to interact with a DAO. But then once you've interacted with a DAO, how a DAO can become possibly an issuer of credentials to, to push stuff outside. So I think the, <laughs> the opportunities are endless there. Um, one of the concepts that I found quite interesting when we first uh, had spoken, Lauren, was the whole topic of mutability. And coming from the blockchain space, the the, the concept of immutability is uh, one of the, the ones you'll hear the most and one of the biggest benefits for having something recorded on a blockchain ledger, like having crypto transactions on there. Um, in the whole Web3 space, where, where does mutability become interesting? And what are some of the uses uh, of mutability, maybe how it interacts with the, with the other elements? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think like, I mean, when you think about immutability, like what's the interesting thing there? And I really think it's about having this immutable or like audit trail, right? It's so that you can go back to a point in time and have an indisputable kind of audit log of events of things that have happened and where funds have kind of moved and transactions that have transpired. Um, so I think the interesting thing about mutability is not necessarily like I think some people think of it and think, oh, I just want something that we're able to change. And then how do you think about the security of that? And how will you know when there's been updates? And that's not really kind of the question. And I think when we get into how ceramic is architected, it becomes a little bit more clear of how we're kind of thinking about mutability. But basically, there's a need for mutable data in so many use cases and really focused around user generated content. And, and especially when you think about data generally, but User data content or user generated content, I think, is a really good place to start. Um, so, just to make that concrete, think about like chat or commenting, right? So, if you and I are talking in a, a chat room, um, I don't want to just have like a one snapshot in time of where the conversation ends and have that immutable forever. We're going to be going back and forth and adding comments over time. You're going to come back and respond to me. I want might want to go back if we think about a Discord or a Slack thread and edit a previous comment and change what I said. Um, so you need that kind of mutability and dynamic data really when you're thinking about a lot of user and identity related data. And we can go back to what we were just talking about before, right, with DAO directories. Um, those organizational profiles, those are going to be dynamic. More people are going to come in, they're going to leave, they'll be you know, promoted up the ranks. Um, so again, this is like another example of you don't want to just have this org profile directory that you publish and you never change ever again, it has to be able to be adapted. Um, and so the way that ceramic works is um, we have basically what we call a stream of dynamic data. Um, and what you're able to do is actually store the updates to this event or to this, to this object, right? Um, so it's not that you're 
you still have an audit trail and you still have that immutability, so to speak, in terms of a record of the changes or previous versions of that history for some stream types, at least. Um, and but you still have a way that you can actually change and update that content. So um, I don't know. I can talk a little bit about IPFS, um, but I'll just pause there maybe and see if that makes sense. So far. It does. And I think it would be a good segue into IPFS. And so, so I guess with um, Web 2 and all, all of the, the stuff we interact with mostly every day now, it's, it's because of user generated content. So when that was unlocked, that kind of opened up all, all these new models. Um, and yeah, I, I, I totally get it. If, if, I'm, if I'm using a system and uh, I post something and tomorrow I'm worried that I might get canceled because I said something, maybe I want to, <laughs> to delete it. Um, <laughs> just an example, but uh, how does IPFS play into this? Maybe just for folks who aren't familiar with IPFS, uh, could you explain what it is and then what its role is in, in this whole um, dynamic data stream? Yeah, for sure. So IPFS, the interplanetary file system, is like one of the first decentralized data storage systems to have been created and really like one of the first um, like protocols in the Web3 space. Like Juan, who is the, the founder of Protocol Labs, which is the team behind IPFS, is really considered like one of the grandfathers of Web3 along with Vitalik. Um, he's been in the space and been thinking about some of these really core primitives for a while. Um, and so IPFS and, and people might have heard listeners um, of Filecoin, which is the token, the incentive mechanism for the IPFS network. Um, it's basically a peer-to-peer -peer way to store data. Um, and the thing about IPFS is that it's really good for immutable data. So back to that topic that we were just chatting about, which is great for a lot of use cases. You do want that immutable data store. Um, but as we talked about, there are examples where you actually want that mutability. And that's actually what Ceramic does is we just created a mutable layer building off of IPFS. So we actually leverage their core ecosystem and Protocol Labs is an investor in three box labs. We're very closely aligned in terms of our vision, um, but for them just focusing on mutable data is not a core part of their vision. So we're kind of partnering to tackle all facets of the, uh, the Web3 data ecosystem. In, in the Web3 space, one of the very powerful things is the, the concept of composability, where um, th things are published as, as public and permissionless and open, and there's nothing stopping anyone from going in and grabbing a piece of code or software and just putting something on top of it. And we see that happen all the time in the Web3 space. And uh, you know what? It spurs a lot of innovation and a lot of the advancements that are happening. Um, so you have this concept of com composability, and if, if I didn't do it enough justice, maybe you could uh, you could add to it. Um, but we're talking about composability of code. Uh, ceramic is very interesting in that um, you offer composability of data. So how, how how could we kind of dig into that a little bit, and what, why is that so important? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think like the the answer is really about innovation and competition. And I'll like dig into that a little bit more. Um, and actually our co-founder and COO, Danny Zuckerman has a great blog post on Mirror about data composability. So maybe I'll share that. You can link to it in the comments because a lot of this kind of pulls from that. Um, but the idea is that we basically have, like you can think about applications from the Web2 spaces mostly being built in kind of this architecture of three different layers. Like the core is data, right? And that's where we know most of the value is kind of aggregating around this data network. And on top of it, you have the logic, which is really the services. And then you have the interface on the top, right? And that's kind of like the UI, the way that you actually expose both the combination of the data and logic to an user. 
Um, and we know that these applications are constantly changing their interface, their front end, they're making you know, changes to their UI and their user experience. They might be changing the logic quite often, the services, improving their algorithms, let's say. So if you think about um, you know, an Airbnb, for example, they're constantly changing how easy it is to book, their algorithms in terms of recommending you experiences you're gonna like, but the data layer is really persistent and it's actually just getting bigger and bigger. And actually that data layer gets more valuable the more kind of data that you have aggregating uh, in it. So I think what's interesting is why do we need to have application developers that are actually continuing to reinvent the wheel of every time when they go to build an application, they have to worry about building those three parts of a stack when really most of the value is coming from one or two of them, right? And that's really, by that we mean the interface and the logic, right? Um, so what's actually knowing again that the data when it's really networked with other data and you create those network effects is what makes it so valuable, why can't we have this open data network where anyone can build and focus on building the service, the logic and the interface, but everyone kind of leveraging this shared open data infrastructure. And obviously like things like cloud has made some of this a little bit easier, but it's, it's really like this idea of allowing innovation. So people who are saying, hey, I don't wanna to have to worry about data management, user management, because it's hard and it's complicated. And I just really wanna focus on my user experience and the actual like service that I'm providing to them. So this one unlocks like that new innovation, but it also unlocks competition because part of the, the reason competition is so hard right now is you have these walled gardens. Think of like a Facebook, for example, um, they're monetizing by having these huge amounts of, of data in their system and their centralized servers that no one else can access. But when you actually have an open data network, it actually enables new competition because instead of competing over the amount of user data that you can hold on your own monetize, people can start to compete off of user experience and providing the best experience to their user. Um, and maybe to make that concrete, we can think about, you know, today, if I want to leave Twitter and I walk away, I'm going to lose all of my historical comments. I'm going to lose my followers. So that's what keeps people. And that's what keeps those networks super sticky. Um, but if I have an open data layer for me as an user, if I don't like that they're censoring or the way that they're moderating content, I can decide to go to this new Web3 social platform and in one click, give them access to all of my historical information and actually port my comments and my followers to this new application. Uh, and so that's what's really powerful is unlocking innovation from an application developer perspective, competition as well, and like this new kind of playground where it's all about providing the best user experience, which is really a benefit to you know people like us, the end user. So if we, if we look at it kind of at the three levels, you, you describe the UI on top, you have the logic in, in the middle, those two things change frequently, the data that is, is persistent. Um, what exactly is shareable in there? If, if I have social network A and social network B, um, we may be deciding to use the same data structures or data models. We don't necessarily have the same um, metadata or stuff that's sitting in there. Um, but, but what exactly is composable in there for a developer? Yeah, I mean, I think data models is a great example. We can talk about that a little bit more because that's a big part of what we're focused on with Ceramic. Um, so we recently built and released the data models repository. Um, and data models is like a really key way that when application developers are building their solutions, they think about you know the schemas that they want to use to define um, the data that they're storing into their in their solution. Um, and so if you actually start to have a um, data models that are stored on a open platform, it's basically like the equivalent of open source 
um, for data, right? Like, or for data models. Um, that's really what Ceramic is doing at its core is giving people a way to find interesting data models and um, high quality data models. And that's often going to be done by some sort of curation mechanism. So if you think about a bunch of people are gonna start to convene and write um, data models and schemas that they're gonna to wanna to store in the data models repository. If I come there as a new application developer, how do I know which ones to use? I can actually have like other peers now that start to upvote or curate different lists of the best data models for let's say a profile application. And then I can actually now start to reimburse the actual developers of that data model. So now every time someone actually uses that data model and replicates it in their uh, application, so that's that composability piece, the actual creators, the authors of that schema can be paid for that. Or they can, there can even be incentives for people who are reusing that information. Um, so really like this idea of open sourcing data models is like a huge unlock that we see. And I think that's really like the um, North Star or like real ambition of the ceramic network. I think it's a really key part of it. Um, but I think in general, like just talking about the data composability piece, like the user data itself is composable, right? Like going back to the social profile element that I mentioned, um, on Ceramic, every stream is controlled by a DID, which is a decentralized identifier. Um, so you or I as a user, we will, the way that you first kind of authenticate is you'll link a account or a wallet to a DID. Uh, and the benefit of a DID is that you can actually link multiple different accounts to one DID. So you start to create this unified identity and instead of fragmenting your different accounts and assets across chains, you have this one unified identifier that brings it all together. Um, and then what I can do is using that DID, I can write to my stream and store my data. So let's say it's my, my tweets, right? Um, and now what's amazing about it is because this data is open, it is composable by other application builders who, if they want access to that information, I can permission them to then you know, decrypt my information if I decide to encrypt it on the network and allow them to view it and actually use it in a new profile that I want to create in their application or a new you know, account on their social platform. How do you how do you look at kind of your open data layers versus the the reputation and kind of what, where I'm going at here is um, often in the SSI space and a, a lot of we, we do a bit of a mix where we do a lot of uh, top down work as well like uh, I, I'm a government and I want to issue a foundational uh, identity to my citizens like a driver's license for example. Yeah. Um, and then, and then you, you have these kind of bottom-up approaches as well, which is maybe I'm, um, I, I want to build kind of um, a repertoire of, of skill sets or of, of knowledge of some, something that could be useful in this new gig economy that we're talking about here. Um, and so uh, how would you contrast kind of the, the core identity with like the data? Because it sounds like two different things, no? Like I, and it, it may be how you define identity, but I, I may have personally identifiable information that I'm storing and I want to own and stuff like that, but my data is something else. Um, is the only link between the two of them for um, for Ceramic really, it's the, it's the DID, just the, the, the private key to show ownership? Yeah, I mean, I think like, well, first of all, identity itself is just like super hazy. We talk about this all the time of like, everyone talks about decentralized identity and it's this huge buzz and no one has any idea what it means. And it's because it means a hundred different things. <laughs> if you ask a hundred different people, you'll get a hundred different answers. Um, but I think for us, like the way that we think about identity is really like all of your data that lives online. So for us, like your data is your identity. Like if you think about the assets that you own, the NFTs that you collect, um, you know, the context that you're storing, um, 
on your social profile, like that is your identity. That's what makes up your identity online, right? And there are other people who think about identity as like a more traditional, it's a social security number, it's your, your driver's license, that's like your state issued identity, which is another form of identity. Um, and the way that we think about it with ceramic is that, you know, there's verifiable credentials, which I'm sure I know people on your podcast have also talked a lot about, but there's plenty of applications and we're working with different projects where you can still issue, have a, a, a government or another issuer, um, you know, produce some sort of verifiable credential, let's say that is your state issued ID and actually just store it on ceramic. And the benefit is that you still get all of like the core benefits that we talked about with ceramic in terms of like one, the user control that you have over it, being able to permission it and port it with you, tying it to this like greater sense of identity. So maybe like a good example to make something like that concrete is thinking about like a credit score or like a risk score on a lending protocol. Um, maybe like they do want to see some sense of real world identity to KYC me. And I want to actually have a verifiable credential stored to my DID on ceramic um, that links to some sense of real world identity, like a driver's license or a passport. Um, but they also care about my on-chain behavior. They want to know about, have I, you know, taken out loans from other protocols? Was I, you know, did I, did I uphold my position and like my obligations there? Um, am I in crypto? Right. <laughs> uh, so there's like other behavior that they'll want to see in addition to that. And that's the way that we see it is just kind of like one element. But we think that thinking about just state issued ideas, a very narrow element, especially as so much more of identity moves online, right? Like everything we're doing and also into this like crypto world where your identity is like this long key string that's your like account address, right? Like you don't have an username like you do in web two. Identity in web three is so much more confusing. And I don't know that I see a world where like, we're all gonna have to share our driver's license to, you know, get access and authenticate into things in the future. Like it feels like that is, we're moving further and further away from that, especially in like, if you think about, you know, more like non-democratic nations where people are already trying to kind of move further away from that model. If I'm running a DAO or if I'm just running a software company and I want to hire developers, like I actually don't really care about seeing a transcript or a university degree or something like that. Like I'd, I'd rather just um, get proof of, of skills or credentials that, that these folks have. And it's just um, what matters, I guess, in the digital world is not necessarily what matters in the physical world. Um, the physical world's trying to go digital. It is going digital, but there's this whole other... <laughs> I hate to use the term now since Zuckerberg came out with, well, meh, changed their name to meta, but this whole new metaverse is, is, is actually happening. Um, so the, is, I, I saw this statement on Twitter from, um, from, from someone earlier today. I, I found it quite interesting and it's, it's a nice, maybe it's a nice way of summarizing what, what ceramic does, but you could actually, is it correct to say I could actually build database-less software now? Um, I don't necessarily if I want to create a social media network, if I want to create a marketplace for, for X, Y, and, and Z, I, I could do so without a database. I could just reuse the different models and, uh, and leverage ceramic for, for my users to own the data and to move it around as they wish. Yeah, I mean, I think, yes, it is the ultimate end state, right? Is you're storing information, like the whole goal of ceramic, like we talked about before, is to kind of abstract out that kind of data user management piece that's so difficult for application developers, especially in like a web three fully decentralized context. Um, so, but I would just say like today there's on ceramic, so we haven't actually launched our token yet. 
um, which we're planning to launch next year. Um, so there's not an incentive mechanism today to like back up information onto the network. So a lot of application developers today that are using ceramic, they, they will still kind of back up their information to like an S3 bucket or like a more traditional Web2 database to have that data persistence. Eventually, like, and I think having the, the token incentive, but I think this is just an important piece I think to call out because there is like a nuance of it, right? Like the, yes, ceramic is an open data network, but what is really important about having like a robust data architecture is having data persistence and that reliability. Um, and so that really comes when you actually have the FIRE token, which we'll be issuing next year. And that way you can actually basically, there will be a cost to not only write data to the network, but to make sure your data is persisted. Once you have that, then yes, you can do away with kind of those like backup systems. Um, but I think that there is kind of a, there's definitely like, some scenarios where you might still want to have some sort of database architecture if you have you referenced before PII if you have any like really sensitive data um, yes you can encrypt data on ceramic and on any open network but I don't think that anyone today would tell you um, or should be telling you that you should be storing super sensitive data on an open public network even if it's encrypted um, so there are some use cases where maybe you want to store some information kind of like offline um, but then there is other information that you want to you know keep in a public open network because there's benefits of having that be publicly discoverable and reusable developers become the target buyer for for what you're doing um and i know you've you've been on both sides of it as well just just like i i have been where if you're on one side doing enterprise sales your your buyer is completely different than your your buyer um perhaps with uh, with ceramic and uh, if i'm not wrong sort ceramic and just like a lot of the web3 space you're basically selling to developers right you're, you're trying to grow a community of developers that are going to advance the mission what you're trying to do and then uh, give people a, a stake in, in the pie as they're doing it. Um, I'm sure there's lots of listeners of this podcast that fall on the enterprise sales side of things, but there also are some that fall on, they, they sell to developers side of things, more the bottom up again. Um, how, how, how has been your experience so far selling to developers? Like, how, how is it different? Uh, what are the strategies that Ceramic uses? Um, what, what are good ways to build communities of developers? Yeah, good, good question. I think like one, we're all kind of trying to figure this out right now. I don't think anyone has a perfect um, recipe book for that yet. Um, but I think like, yes, there's some key differences. But my first couple of weeks transitioning more to the side of the space was definitely an adjustment period. And like one of the key differences is sometimes you don't even know the actual person that you're trying to work with, right? Like in the Web3 space, there's tons of people who want to be completely anonymous or pseudonymous. And you don't even really know what their name is. You just have their Discord handle and they won't even get on a call with you. You just want to kind of DM and you're trying to answer their questions and understand their entire solution architecture and say something valuable. Um, so that's like the biggest difference versus I think like on the enterprise side, it's so much more about the relationship building and account building, which to some degree is true here too. But of course, like, you, you always have that kind of real world sense of identity intrinsically in that kind of business transaction. Um, so I think like that's an obvious one, but it really has a lot of downstream implications to even thinking about like community building when if you don't really even know like where this person lives or what their background is, like how do you start to build this kind of like shared sense of community when you're missing some of those more traditional things that bring people together? And I think that like drives you to be a much more values driven community is why does everyone come here? Everyone's drawn to this Web3 space that's highly ideological. Um, so how do we make sure that our users understand our, our values around like 
bringing out this kind of mission and vision of sovereign data and thinking about data privacy and data ownership. Um, so I think that's like a big thing is like creating this, it's much more values driven in terms of like both the, the kind of BD strategy and then also the community building element. Um, but I think like the other thing is, I think this space, just the nature of building and emerging tech and you, I think, yes, the enterprise blockchain space, you're still in the emerging tech space, but just the nature of being more on the enterprise side, people are a lot less, um, you know, there's a lot less margin for error, I would say, versus being in this kind of very developer focused community and the, the crypto native side of the space, people are really understanding that like everything is going to be an MVP, right? Everything is kind of like a work in progress. There's a further roadmap of a progressive decentralization, a progressive, you know, protocol improvements and security enhancements. And there's going to be bugs and people are really willing to work with you and to collaborate and to let you know what they're having challenges with versus on the other side for the enterprise blockchain space, these folks are trying to sell to big established organizations. They don't have that, um, that, Lee room, right? Um, so I think that is like a, a fundamental difference that I've found. Well, obviously in the Web3 space, you, you rethink the, the whole structure of an organization too, where like you'll have developers that are interested, they'll join your Discord and um, you, you're part of a corporation that's, that's gotten funding and is pushing this agenda for, just to get it up, up, up and running and off the ground. But then all of a sudden you have all these people that are in here that because everything is open and everything's open for, for, for read and write and, and all these things, people could come and contribute to, to the mission as well. Um, yeah. So that, that's quite, quite interesting. For sure. And like having to manage those different stakeholders, right? Like we have some people in our community who are builders building with ceramic. We have other people that just want to be token holders when we do our token launch. Um, we have other people that are just really interested in the space and they just want to learn. How do you balance like that entire ecosystem of multiple different competing stakeholders, especially when you're kind of a small team with your own competing priorities. Um, I think that's always a challenge. And that's why I think just going back to values, right? Like what's the underlying thread, I think is like Web3 is a very unique space and just how values driven it is. And part of the reason why I love being in it. One of the things that uh, developers need and they, they struggle with because there's often a lack of it or sometimes folks don't like doing it is uh, the documentation. Um, and um, I, one of the, the ideas that came up from um, uh, identity architect on our team as we are talking through Ceramic is he, he really sees opportunities to replace something like GitHub for decentralized documentation. Um, is that something that's being worked on or talked about? Uh, I'm sure it is. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like there's a couple of different elements to that. I mean, one, I would be so excited for, for that to be created. I think that is so needed. Um, so there's different like elements of that that are being built out or that I've seen in different bits and pieces. There was a great hackathon project from one of our ETH global hackathons a couple months ago um, called Docs, D-O-X-X. Um, you can find it on our um, Ceramic Awesome repo. Um, and he basically did kind of like a Notion type app using Ceramic. Um, and then we also are doing some work with Radical, um, which is not obviously a blockchain-based organization, but they're trying to create a, they are creating a decentralized GitHub. Um, and so we're working with them to use what I mentioned before, um, the safety ID to create those kind of org profiles um, to those GitHub repos. So if I'm a DAO and I want to, we're a product DAO, we're creating something, we want to put it on Radical so it's on fully decentralized 
uh, architecture, but we want to have some sort of description of who we are, what we do, and what we're building. Again, you want to store them in a centralized way, so um, that's a, another really great ceramic use case. Um, but yeah, I think like just going back to like the docs challenge, it is like so it's such a difficult problem because um, you know everyone is so busy like sprinting on actually wanting to build great product and execute against a roadmap. But if you don't have good documentation, it doesn't really matter what you built if no one can use it. But finding that balance for our team, especially, and I think all teams struggle of like, okay, go heads down doing work versus, you know, I think next sprint we're blocking out for us, like two or three devs that are only working on documentation um, because it's just so important to have like that quality um, and to, to be super instructive and having them current, which is also hard when your tech is changing so constantly. Um, agreed. Docs is like an underrated struggle that we need better tools for. It's a core product to, to selling to devs anyways, right? As a company. So it's just, it, it, although it's painful, sometimes it probably needs to be uh, just as important as uh, releasing new features uh, on a protocol. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned a bit earlier, and I, I want to go back into this idea as well. We were talking about just what is identity. It's a bit fuzzy. Um, do you have a good way of distinguishing what should be a verifiable credential versus what should be a piece of data. Maybe that's where the, your reputation comes back into it, but coming from where I'm coming from, it, it, it's all about DIDs and it's all about VCs. Um, the, these are the first things that are being stored inside of wallets and stuff like that. Um, do you have an idea of like how, how you would consider one versus the other, or it's just a way of rendering it or how they work together? Yeah. I'm not sure that I have the best answer for that. I think that we do a lot of stuff. Um, you know, obviously ceramic is architected around DIDs as a framework, but that said, we're doing a lot of work with other projects that are focused on verifiable credentials and aren't using ceramic to kind of store and persist those and tie it to a decentralized identifier, like tie it to this unique sense of identity. So I think it goes back to probably what I said before, and I don't want to kind of like be redundant here, but just this idea of what's really powerful about a DID is being able to link to these multiple different accounts to this unified sense of identity. And what's also powerful, powerful about that is that you have this sense of um, or ability to do really secure key revocation. So if I lose access to a certain account, um, if I'm doing something where all of my authentication is just based on you know, a key pairing, if I lose access to that account or to this my private key, I'm gonna lose access to any of the data that was stored in that wallet. So that's really problematic if we think about like a verifiable credential that is like a skill, for example. Um, and if that's just like a verifiable credential that I'm like issuing kind of in isolation, um, if I lose access to that account, then I lose access to any sort of claim over that skill or credential, which maybe isn't a big deal if it's, you know, about a one hour workshop that I did. But what if that was representing three, a three month boot camp that I did? And I actually wanted to use that credential to go to DAOs and to actually show proof that I have this skill set that I need to work on a project. Um, so it's powerful about actually linking that VC to a decentralized identifier on ceramic is that if you are to lose access to whatever account um, you know you do, you still can have access to your, your DID and to your stream that is controlled by that DID and any information stored within it. So I can still get access to that verifiable credential through my DID, um, which is a really big deal, especially like like I mentioned, if we're talking about things that are um, 
credentials that I, as a user, I want to persist over time and make sure that I'm going to have access to. Um, so that's kind of the way that I would think about it. I, I won't claim to be the expert here. I'm sure uh, other folks might have a more detailed answer. I think uh, you could put a line in the sand where um, there is a difference between credentials being issued by a certain entity that is has been deemed um, worthy enough to issue a specific credential. Um, we could get into a whole governance conversation there, but um, there's a difference between that and the difference between having user-generated user content, which just it proves something I've done, but it's not necessarily a specific entity issuing it to me. I don't know if that's the, the way to, to look at it, but um, we'll, we'll keep thinking about that. And then as we're talking about the documentation too, um, there's probably a lot of use cases as well, just for changing the way like academic papers are, are shared uh, as, as well. Um, so quite, quite interesting there. Um, would you be able to give just a few examples? I know there's a bunch of projects that are live today on, on Ceramic. Um, there's probably new ones popping up every week. Um, I know you have a lot of interest in DAOs and skills and, and credentials around that and, and the creator economy, but what are some of the the ones that maybe personally not representing ceramic or talking for anyone but that you're is exciting you that you're seeing happening right now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so so many of them. I think I referenced a bunch of them maybe in passing above, and I'll just kind of like pour through them again more concretely. Um, like in the the DAO space, we talked about org directories, so I talked about Radical a little. Um, I also like briefly mentioned people using ceramic for decentralized data storage of, of content, um, of user-generated content. So in the DAO space, we're seeing that a lot with proposals, so storing the actual proposal comment and then commenting um, that's happening around that proposal. So boardroom, um, which is like an awesome uh, you know, piece of DAO tooling um, is using ceramic under the hood to actually store that information. Um, so, and all of, I think a bunch of these, by the way, for listeners, you can go onto our blog, blog.ceramic.network. We have a bunch of showcases on some of these if you want to read more in detail about what they're doing. Um, we talked a little bit about kind of like reputation systems um, in DAOs and then also kind of like, uh, like contributions and actually figuring out how to, thinking about like DAO organization and um, better tooling to actually organize working groups and contributors. Um, so I know you had Stefan on here, we're, we're talking with the Deep Work team and they're also looking at using ceramic for that. Um, which is super interesting. And they're basically creating a, a way for working groups, which is super hard, like me now actually having participated in some of the working groups to actually figure out like, okay, what do we want to do? What needs to be done? Like what's the punch list of activities if we want to put on this event? What are the different discrete action items that need to be done? Who's going to do what? And how do we kind of reward your contributions? Um, sounds pretty simple, but doing that in a decentralized way, coordinating not only the roles and the funds is pretty difficult. Um, so really excited about what they're doing to kind of like solve that niche. Um, and so they're looking at using ceramic um, to as for both kind of like the identity element and also storing that information um, off chain. Um, and I don't know that we've gotten into that in too much detail, but that is definitely like one big kind of like value prop of ceramic that we haven't touched on too much is that ceramic is obviously intended for off chain data. So again, there's a lot of you know information that you want to have on chain and having all of kind of the benefits that come of that again like immutability and having like that security um but there's a lot of things that you don't need that level of and so people want to store and thinking more and more strategically about what can we put on versus off so a good example of that is maybe 
thinking about metadata related to NFTs. Um, so obviously, you know, well, an NFT itself can be issued on chain and ownership can actually be transferred on chain. Um, the actual like JPEG itself, for example, if it's an image or any metadata associated with it. So let's say you want to have a address book and every owner of the NFT wants to add their name and a quick story about why they purchased it, what spoke to them about the NFT. No reason to store any of that data online. Great ceramic use case because again, mutable data. Um, and similar to kind of the save DID framework that we talked about earlier, we also create something called NFT DID so that an NFT itself can also be a controller of a stream. So what that enables is unlock some really interesting use cases where as the NFT changes hands, the controller of the ceramic stream is also updated. So what you can have is like really interesting use cases where that's what enables the use case I was just talking about of like the address book. So as you know, I transfer the NFT to you, you're now the owner of the NFT, you can now control the ceramic stream so you can add your story to it, but you can also change the art itself. So you can have these really interesting use cases where you have you know, generative community art where when you get the NFT, you actually get to update it and change what the art looks like itself. Um, you can think about that's um, another really interesting use case for that is in in-game assets. So let's say I purchase a parcel of land and I wanna build a house on it. Um, when you buy that from me and the NFT transfers to your hands, you can now change what the house looks like. And for both of us as we're in the game, we'll actually see that house updated in a virtual world. Um, so things like that are super interesting. Like I think that for sure blockchain and like all the stuff that we're talking about is like a key part of the metaverse, like actually being able to have authentic proof of digital ownership in a virtual world is gonna be so important. And I think that NFT use case we just talked about really highlights that. Um, maybe like one more I could hit on. Um, we just published also another blog post with the CyberConnect team. A really awesome team creating a social graph for Web3. So this is basically like, how do I, you know, find friends and followers in an open decentralized network? Um, so this is actually like a key part of building social platforms um, in Web3. So if I actually want to create a feed where I have a, or sorry, a social platform like a Web3 Twitter, um, but I want my newsfeed to be curated in a decentralized way, right? That's the whole idea of Web3. Instead of Twitter and their algorithm telling me what I should see and look at, it's open and a community can decide what I look at. Um, so super interesting, this kind of social graph infrastructure is what enables that by connecting me to friends and helping me to find curated lists. Another example could be on an NFT marketplace, using the CyberConnect social graph to curate, you know, NFTs that I, they think I would like from interesting artists um, or NFTs that my friends have purchased. Um, so I think that's like a really interesting use case as well. Um, and they're using ceramic, of course, to store all of that social graph data. So I'll just pause there. It's like a ton of different use cases, but like mostly centered around, you know, identity focused use cases, multi um, account identity. So like creating this unified sense of identity across different wallets and accounts, and then really like user-generated content. Those are kind of like the two buckets, I guess, that I just touched on that we're focusing on. Yeah, the NFT one is fascinating. And there, um, I hear conversation all the time and I've done a podcast in the past about that as well, just talking about how um, identity and NFTs kind of play together. I, I, that one's quite fascinating. And I, I think the, a lot of people are very excited about the gaming space as well. And the example you gave about um, and if you transfer a specific asset in a game to another person, 
what happened there's still life after that and things change and evolve and i, I could really see uh, the importance of that use case um it, it's it's quite curious because i think in our everyday lives like we still use stuff from call it web one like we, we use email every day for for stuff right um we use uh, web two stuff as well like uh, we <laughs> we're using discord or we're using zoom here or whatever we're doing right uh, the social media networks and stuff like that um, there's these pure web three situations as well. Um, is, do you see ceramic kind of, um, suiting the needs of web two or web one stuff as well? Like, would there be these applications of today's internet or the old internet? So let's call it the old internet that would be able to upgrade their, their systems or products using ceramic or, um, is it more kind of these just new off the ground use cases that you see uh, using ceramic? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think so. I think like there is just this core benefit of, I mean, really like two things. One is like what I mentioned before in terms of like the data composability. So like one is there, it's kind of a show of goodwill to their users that they're allowing that information to now be used by other application developers, but vice versa, they can now leverage this open data network to access more information from other users as well and worry less about this data management piece. And I think that gets a, the second element, which is really like the, like the kind of a core thesis or like idea and what really kind of spurred the Web3 movement was that it's not just ideological, but there's like a lot of issues with Web2 architecture. Um, and like keeping all of your information in a centralized server is, is very difficult. Like centralizing that information is also centralizing risk and liability, right? And now you have this onus to actually like protect and that user data and that information. And as we've seen, like, I feel like every day I read about another hack and it's like all of these huge companies, like the biggest, most well-known companies that we've heard of, like, you know, Facebook and Equifax and back in the day, the Yahoo hack, like that was huge. Um, and so if those companies can't do it well, I mean, it just proves no one can like user management is hard. And so if you actually can abstract that, um, not only does that like help take out this very complicated factor for application developers, but you also have this kind of like um, common good that now you have like some of the same benefits of open source that it's like a fully open and audible um, auditable platform where everyone is kind of working on like the security of it and everyone kind of understands the different loopholes rather than if you're keeping a centralized server, I have no idea what's happening back then. It's just as an user, I have to trust that this company is, you know, giving their best effort to protect my information. And I think like most people we've, that's been like the evolution, right? It's like, we're like, hey, we don't trust you anymore. Enough stuff has happened that we know you're probably not doing enough. Um, so back to your specific question. Yes, I think that for a lot of Web2 companies, there's like yes, this benefit of composability of data, but it's also from like a, a security and operational perspective, like in a distributed data system, you have data protection, you have the resiliency and redundancy that you don't have in centralized servers. And there's also like operational efficiencies because you don't have to worry about tons of redundant infrastructure. Um, so I think that there's definitely a world in which these Web2 companies can benefit. Will they do that? I'm not sure. And I think there's a lot of reasons behind that, but one is just a lot of their business models don't allow for it, right? Like a lot of them, their business model is built on having centralized data that they monetize off of. So it's really antithesis to their core um, to go in this direction. We'll see if, if they do. I mean, that's like the whole innovation game. 
Yeah, which which you mentioned the importance of uh, of, of data, and I think the, the the data is the new oil uh, kind of um, phrase that we've been hearing over and over again um, has led to companies thinking just having a lot of data is is valuable and is what's going to create value for for their company, but potentially, and if we just take that that GitHub and uh, the the decentralized documentation use case. Um, I guess there would be nothing stopping Microsoft who owns GitHub to say, hey, you know what, Let, let's split off the data component from this out of uh, kind of our UI and our logic, which is superior to everything else that's out there. And we'll keep focusing on that. But perhaps, and perhaps a lot of the, um, the data and privacy uh, laws that are just continuing to evolve, maybe will logically push that to happen. I'm, I'm not sure, but um, it's, it's probably a big ask, right? So th then you kind of wonder, um, are they going to become the incumbent if they're not able to, to, to do that? So, or are they going to be able to evolve and abstract that data layer out to, to be able to, to survive, I guess, with the new ones that are going to just be building from the ground up but are going to be building with that new architecture from scratch? I guess it's a uh, not a million or a billion, trillions dollars of questions. <laughs> yeah, it's the, I guess, like, there's definitely some parallel to the blockbuster Netflix analogy, like, you know, either be displaced or be innovative and we'll see who can uh, stay ahead of the curve. Yeah. And I, I guess let's, let's finish on that. And I, I really like the, so you're basically like in, in this new architecture, you, the data layer is a public utility. That's, that's the, the way of, of looking at it. And uh, that's, I guess, what needs to happen for, uh, for companies to survive. Um, Lauren, thank you so much for doing this with me. This was a, quite a fascinating conversation. I'm sure listeners are going to uh, get a lot out of this. And uh, I, I look forward to staying in touch, um, keeping up with what Ceramic's up to, and, and perhaps uh, collaborating moving forward. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This was super fun and excited to keep listening to all your future episodes. Thanks for tuning in today. Hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. To stay up to speed with future episodes, or to catch up on ones you may have missed, make sure to check out the SSI Orbit podcast on your favorite podcast platform, and make sure you subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or wish to see someone in particular on a future episode, you can find me by searching Metzer Glode on LinkedIn or Twitter. Feel free to reach out to me directly and I'll get back to you. See you all next time.